Uh, Father God, as we have uh, sought you, uh, sought to meet you in our worship and sacrifice and, and testimonies of faith, we pray now that you would come and meet us in our hearts, our spirits, our bodies, that you would minister directly to us and give us our weekly dose of change, encouragement, and empowerment for the week ahead. We pray, Lord, that you would breathe the very spirit of life into us this morning, uh, that you would heal what needs to be healed, restore what needs to be restored, expand what needs to be expanded. The power that is in us is the power that raised Christ from the dead. We pray that you would show us and demonstrate that through us in Christ's name. Uh, Amen. Uh, Let me ask you a question to get you going. What season of life has defined you most? Some of you have had less than 20 years of life left uh, so far, and uh, some of us have less than 20 years of life left. Um, Some of us have had short stays on earth, some of us longer, but think back. What season of life has defined you most? And you get to define what define means. All right, everybody got it? We got a season? All right, the season of life that defined you most was A, an awesomely wonderful season, or B, a really, really challenging season. How many awesomely wonderful? How many awesomely challenging? Challenging wins. Yeah, that's usually how it works out. Um, I love lives that are defined by joy uh, and wonder. They tend to be strong lives. But for a lot of us, the most definitive experiences are the challenging ones. Uh, and I think it's probably because the challenging ones, you know, they require strength. And they require us to, uh, to decide who we really are. We've been in a sermon series on the life of King David. The life of David is epic. It is uh, the most complete biography uh, in the Bible. So many profound moments in it. The dude was anointed king while he was still a shepherd boy. That's pretty awesome. That's interesting. Next thing we know, he kills a giant. He kills Goliath. Well, that's epic. People have been singing about that ever since. He became a military captain and a hero of great reputation. Uh, The king tried to murder him unfairly. He escapes a murderous king. He lives like Robin Hood in the hills for a while. Eventually, as we know, he gets crowned king of all Israel. Uh, At a certain point, he dances before the ark naked, and his moves become immortalized. He writes a ton of hit songs. Uh, We have them in the book of the Bible called Psalms. He dabbles as an adulterer and a murderer. Yeah, there's that. That story is coming. It's ahead. He survived a coup from within his own family. That's interesting. He faces down every enemy that Israel has, the greatest king in the history of his people, an epic story, epically awesome, occasionally epically awful. And you'd be hard-pressed to pick a greatest moment, a most definitive moment in that story, Uh, but I'll try. I'm going to try and do that. And remember, the, the thesis of our sermon series on the life of David is to figure out why God thought he was a man after his own heart. But that's all we know uh, going in, that David has been identified as a man after God's own heart. Uh, and that's part of the reason that, um, that I choose this story uh, as the most definitive moment uh, by David. We're cutting 
we're cutting backwards in the story a little bit. Uh, last week we told a story about when David was escaping from King Saul. Uh, he at first ran to this uh, priestly town called Nob, and he inadvertently gets everyone in town killed, which is kind of a, a bad day uh, when, you, when you get everyone in a town killed. Um, the, uh, the book of 1 Samuel is sort of a collection of several different chronicles of the life of David. So sometimes Samuel tells the story slightly out of order or will kind of repeat parts of the story in a funky sequence. So what we're going to do now is go back into the story uh, about David getting the town of Nob wiped out and him escaping from there and taking shelter in the mountains. We're going to cut back into it and we're going to take a look at the immediate aftermath. Like David runs from, from Nob and, and then this is what happened. It's going to be in 1 Samuel 21 uh, and 22. Uh, a few verses are repeats from last week. Uh, you'll find them in your program, and they'll be up on the big board behind me, or you can follow along in your own battle, your own battle, your own uh, Bible. Uh, so, uh, as you recall, David is fleeing from King Saul because Saul is trying to kill him uh, because Saul is very insecure about David's fame and competence. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Akish, king of Gath. Uh, Gath, anybody remember? Gath has been mentioned in this, in this story already. Where is Gath? Who's from Gath? Goliath was from Gath. Gath is a Philistine town. So David runs to Nob, uh, lies to the priests, ends up getting the entire town destroyed by Saul. And then he runs to Philistine territory. He runs into the territory of the enemy, in other words. And he goes to the hometown of the guy he killed to get famous. Just so you know, he runs into Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, uh, the king of the land? Which is interesting, because who was the king of the land? Yeah, but, but they know David's an up-and-comer. Isn't this, isn't this David, the the strong man uh, of Israel, isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath, which is interesting because at this point you think David would be afraid of nothing. But there's something about this story that, something in this story that terrifies David. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. Well, that's creative. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Anybody care to demonstrate? Akish said to his servants, Look at the man! He's insane! Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have come to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Icky. You've got to be kidding me. That's gross. So David uses the gross defense. Uh, moving ahead to chapter 22, uh, David uh, gets let go, essentially. Uh, he, gets, uh, he gets out of the jam. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Uh, the word Adullam uh, simply means uh, refuge or stronghold. And some of your Bibles will actually just translate it that way. In the cave of the stronghold. 
When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. This is the Robin Hood bit. About 400 men were with him. Well, from there, David went to Mizbah in Moab, another foreign territory, and said to the king of Moab, Hey, would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? Until I learn what God will do for me. So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, the first appearance of him, Do not stay in that stronghold. Go back into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth, uh, which is, which is in, in Judah. I think this is, these, these verses, these ten or so verses, are really the turning point of, of David's whole story um, because it's hard for a person to know who he is until he's lost everything. And this is, uh, this is the moment in, in David's story where he loses everything. Uh, let's go through it quickly, uh, just step by step to make sure that we catch it all. David uh, is fleeing from Saul. He makes this terrible mistake in Nob, like, like we say, and ends up getting an entire town wiped out. Uh, we learned last week the entire town gets wiped out except one guy. And then David <clears throat> takes responsibility for the guy, ultimately, at sort of somewhere in, in this story uh, that we're reading today. David sort of adopts this fellow. And, uh, and starts taking care of him. Uh, but, but the mystery is, why would David run from Israelite territory to the, tor- to the uh, territory of his enemy? Indeed, his most famous enemy. Why, why do we run to the territory of the enemy? <laughs> this is a great metaphorical question. Is it smart to do that? What in the world uh, was, was David thinking? Well, one thing he might have been thinking is that King Saul couldn't reach him there. And so in a way, it's kind of smart, right? If you're running away from something, uh, go to a place where your pursuer cannot reach you. And King Saul, being the king of Israel, could not go to the land of the Philistines because, well, that would be war, and the Philistines would attack Saul. And so David may have been thinking, you know, I can get some rest here. I can get a break here. Uh, more metaphorically, that's often why we run to the territory of the enemy in life, isn't it? To get a break, to get some rest. Um, so David may have been, as the country saying goes, too smart by half. <laughs> you know, I'm going to run away from Saul. Saul's not going to pursue me here. Hey, weren't these the guys who formerly were trying to kill me? Didn't maybe think it through? But maybe he did. Maybe he did a little bit. Because you may remember when, uh, when David was at the, at the temple in Nob, the priest there gave him something. What was it? The sword of Goliath, which had been housed there in sort of the museum. So David walks into the hometown of Goliath with the sword of Goliath over his shoulder. And you may remember from the story of the battle of David and Goliath that the deal was whichever champion won got to subjugate the other, the other camp, the other people. And so David may have thought, look, I'm going to walk in with the trophy of the battle. 
I killed their champion, which makes me the champion, and they're going to respect the deal that I made with Goliath on the battlefield, and they're going to treat me as a champion. They're going to treat me as sort of a kingly dignitary. He may have thought that, but come on, right? Does that make any sense in the real world? Um, At best, it was a pipe dream. And, and maybe it was. Maybe, maybe, maybe David was, was pipe dreaming. I'm not saying he smoked the pipe, but, you know, maybe, maybe he was just grasping at straws, which we do in times of great stress, don't we? We sometimes take refuge in pipe dreams just to get through the day. Oh, I know, this will work out. I'm sure this will work out. I know it seems insane to you, but this plan will work out. Why? Well, because it has to. Because I decided it should. And no one's going to tell me any different. Anybody ever been there? Anybody done anything that really you knew was stupid? Just pretending that it was going to work out because you just couldn't deal anymore? Anybody? Anybody? Just me. Just me. Just me and Jameson. Thanks, man. Um, So it may have been that that was was going on. When we're spiritually unhealthy, sometimes we seize on pipe dreams just to find a way through the day. Uh, But the Philistines react predictably. Uh, The first Samuel account is kind of vague about exactly what the Philistines do, uh, but it turns out uh, we know that David was literally taken prisoner. He was thrown into a, a cell. And we know this because uh, of, of the Psalms, actually, uh, because David wrote a psalm, Psalm 56. And the title given to the psalm is, When the Philistines Had Seized David in Gath. Uh, so he writes this psalm from a prison cell. Uh, the, the, the Gathites uh, take David and say, oh, isn't this David? Got the sword of Gath, going to disarm him, disarm him. We're going to throw him in a prison cell, and we're going to decide, you know, what to do with him. They may not have known what to do with him because of the insanity strategy. So, you know, it was an interesting strategy. It's probably a good choice uh, given given uh, the situation. It says that David was very much afraid of Akish, the king of Gath, which again is just a potent phrase for a warrior like David. And that fear drove him to extreme measures. He feigns insanity, right? He starts, I don't know, speaking gibberish, making signs on, on the post, the doorposts of the gate. I don't know exactly what that means, but, you know, drawing crazy pictures and stuff like that and letting spit run down his beard, which, you know, as bad as it sounds to us, And that culture was much, much worse. Uh, It was sort of a demonstration of uncleanness. It was tantamount to him running around the town naked. Same sort of deal. So, very low, right? This was extremely humiliating for David. Uh, No no doubt about it. It was like a, like a, a desecration because it was something that literally no sane person would do. Therefore, this guy must be insane. That was how extreme it was uh, in that culture. Um, And this is just very, very low 
for David. Have you ever been utterly desperate in life? I mean, like, utterly desperate. Have you ever felt utterly humiliated? Have you ever hit rock bottom and then gone a little bit lower? It's like, Lord, I'm not sure I can survive this. What? Down to there. You ever had that experience and been forced to do something that you never imagined yourself doing just to, just to manage, just to handle it? I don't think all of you have. Probably some of you have. I mean, let's not pretend that all of us have been there. Um, but this is a horrible situation. He's supposed to be king. People are trying to kill him. He's lost everything. He's in prison, in enemy territory, thinking he's going to be killed any day, wondering if God has abandoned him, feigning insanity, running around town naked, so to speak. Low. Low. It's just hard to appreciate what this must have been like, I think. But it works, and David is released in the spirit of, ooh, icky, get that guy out of here. Maybe they couldn't believe that he was really David, right? Because you wouldn't, would you? And maybe that was David's ploy all along. Maybe David couldn't believe that he was really David at that point. And, and I think that's probably more to the point of the story. And on top of all of this, one imagines that back in the homeland, uh, there's surely started a rumor that David has defected to the Philistines because he steals the sword of Goliath and goes back to the city of Goliath, presumably in order to be their champion. And indeed, that might have been his plan. It's like, well, you know, I won't fight against the Israelites maybe, but hey, who do you want me to fight against? Akish. And Akish said, yeah, I'd probably kill you. Could have been something like that. And so, you know, clearly his people are not going to be too proud of him at this moment, and he's got to think about that. David was dumb. Everybody say stupid. Desperate and stupid. And they often go together. Uh, turn, to your, turn to your neighbor and say, desperate is often stupid. And at least on a personal level, uh, David paid for it quite a bit. I mean, the people of Nob paid for it, and now David has paid for it in a very personal way. So it says that David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam, and I think this is the moment, this is the hinge moment more than anything. Adullam means refuge, uh, the hiding place, the stronghold. At this point, David has got nothing. He's surviving somehow, we don't know how, killing small animals or stealing from from people along the way, and he's out in the wilderness, literally living in a hole. He's gone from national hero to homeless guy. He's lied to a priest, he's inadvertently destroyed a town, and he has utterly humiliated himself. He lost the sword of Goliath, uh, for sure. He's, he's, he's holed up on the fringes of his society. Uh, his plans have totally not worked. His honorable behavior got him nowhere, and his dishonorable behavior pretty much gotten him nowhere except alive. That's his situation. And what do you suppose is going through his head? 
at this point. What do you suppose is going through his head, and what do you suppose is going through his heart? Because, of course, the mystery is what makes David's heart so special. And the answer is, well, we actually know what the answer is in great part. Because during uh, these verses that we're talking about, David wrote no fewer than five psalms. And they're all in the book of Psalms in the Bible. Psalms number 34, 52, 56, 57, and 142. Doing this incredibly low, humiliating time in David's life, uh, he, he turned to writing worship songs. Um, the, dude, the dude worshiped. And uh, let me read you. Uh, the titles, because all of these psalms are titled. Not all the psalms have titles. Some of them just have numbers, but these have titles, which is how we know they came from David during this period. Let me read you the titles and some of the verses from each of them, from Psalm 34. The title is, When he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. It has a certain ring to it. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those to look to him, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. A potent line, why? Because literally his face was covered with shame. That was his whole strategy. He had to deal with his spit shame uh, by looking at God. Psalm 56. Of David, a miktam, which is a style of song. When the Philistines had imprisoned him in Gath. That's how we know. When the story says that David was very much afraid of the king, he was writing this. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? So that's kind of half worship song, half self-talk. You know? Our praise songs are often the same. I will praise you. I will do such and such uh, in your name. Psalm 57, the title is of David, a miktam, again. When he, had fret, <clears throat> when he had fled from Saul into the cave. The cave of Adullam became so famous in uh, Israel's history that all you had to say was the cave, and everybody knew what you were talking about when he had fled from Saul into the cave. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. And refuge was the name of the cave. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Now, there's a blue water line for you. I cry out to God who fulfills his purpose for me even though I'm living in a hole right now. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. Uh, Psalm 142, a maskil of David. Maskil, another style of song. When he was in the cave, a prayer. That's the title of that one. Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Set me free from my prison so I can praise you. And then the right people will gather around me because of your goodness to me. 
And doggone it, that's what happens. Somehow, people start gathering around him. And then the story and his purpose begins to unfold. First, David's family shows up. Before, when David was honored, uh, you know, like with the anointing oil by Samuel, they chastised him. And when he acted bravely and killed Goliath and became a military hero, they mocked him for that. But somehow, at this point in his life, when he's been stupid and dishonorable, they rally to him. Sort of ironic, but that's the way it worked. Of course, maybe they're scared of Saul too. They're scared that Saul is going to kill them to get at David. Anyway, they, they end up with David. They find him somewhere out in the wilderness. The word gets around. And it's like his family needed a wake-up call. Like, like they finally see David for the good man he is when everybody else thinks that David is a bad man. Or at least when people are going that way. It flushes out their their family pride or something. Anyway, that reunion there out in the wilderness, uh, I bet there was some serious familial healing uh, that went on there. At least I hope there was. After his family, then the discontented come. Those who had been marginalized by the reign of King Saul, all these criminals and malcontents and debtors, about 400 losers made him their leader. 400 losers. What would that look like? I, don't, I have no idea. I have no idea. No idea. Uh, but they make, him, uh, they make him their leader. Why? I mean, why, why now? You know, the dude is some homeless, disreputable guy at this point, uh, living in a hole in the middle of nowhere, and these 400 people just, just seek him out, these 400 men. Maybe they had family with them as well. Uh, and I think it's because it was at that point that he became accessible to outcasts. Why? Well, because he was an outcast. And that's why David is no longer just a hero. He's a hero that they can identify with, an outcast hero. That's kind of cool. And these 400 malcontents would become the famous mighty men of David. Uh, a fair number of them become Bible legends in their own right. And we're going to read about them later at the end of the story of, of David's life. Uh, these guys would literally change the history of their nation. Um, this is the start of David's people. This is the start of his everlasting throne right here in this terribly low, humiliating moment. And if any of you are interested in becoming a leader, uh, learn this lesson. If you learn to lead when you're weak, you'll have no trouble leading when you're strong. If you learn to lead when you're at your low point, you'll be fine when you're not. There's something about that that's true in the life of David. David uh, kind of rallies to the occasion. He said, all right, all right, stuff seems to be happening here. It's not the stuff that I thought would happen with my life, but here it is. Uh, he, he shakes off his circumstances and he begins planning for the safety of his parents. He takes them to Moab. Why Moab? Well, probably because David's great-grandmother Ruth is from Moab. You remember the book of Ruth in the Bible? That's actually David's grandma. And uh, so he takes his family to his cousins, his distant cousins, essentially. Uh, that's why Moab. And of course, Saul could not go into Moab. That was enemy territory. So that was probably a fairly smart ploy. And David asked for help. He says, hey, 
uh, cuz. Uh, please take care of my family until I learn what God will do for me. I just think that's a very potent phrase just because I've been in situations like this. It's like, you know, I'm trying really hard here, but frankly, I am as stuck as stuck can be, so I need God to do something for me. I need a breakthrough. Until I get it, would you mind helping me out? Um, he puts it very well, and this reveals sort of God's inclination toward I see David's inclination toward God even during the low points. Like, yeah, I haven't figured God out, but I'm watching. <laughs> I'm trying, you know. Um, he wants to deposit his folks safely in Moab while he stays in his mountain stronghold in the caves of Adullam. Uh, but here's another real turning point in the story. Gad, the prophet, the voice of God, shows up in his life, and Gad tells him, Uh, wisdom from the Lord. He says to David, don't stay in the refuge. Don't stay in the stronghold. Don't stay in the cave. Do not hunker down, David. Get back into Judah. Go back into Israel, which was a very challenging thing to say because going into Judah was like going to Saul's doorstep, right? Remember, the entire country was sort of hunting uh, for David. So that was a very dangerous thing for David to do. But it was also a place where David to do some good uh, because his job, remember, was to fight against Israel's enemies. And now he had 400 men who were willing to fight with him. So they go back into their territory, which ironically is enemy territory, effectively. And they start fighting against the Philistines. They start fighting against other tribes that are trying to wipe out Israel. Why? Because Saul is such an inept king that he keeps getting Israel into trouble. So David kind of becomes the Robin Hood shadow force that takes care of Israel. His band of outlaws grows from 400 to 600 guys, and they become a force to be reckoned with. They become the dominant military force in that area of the world actually. And I think the lesson here is that you always have to get back into the fight, that your calling is your calling, no matter how low and how humiliated you feel. In your purpose lies your power. Never, ever stop ministering, ever in life. When you do, you get stuck. There's a difference between being a cave user and a cave dweller. We can use caves from time to time when we need a place to take refuge, but you just can't well there for very long. And if you do, you get stuck in a bad way. You can hole up in those dark places in life if you need to. While you're there, the best thing you can do is worship, is try to keep your heart open to God. You know, um, you can meet God there. We see a lot of people meet God in caves. <laughs> in Scripture, but we, should, we shouldn't stay there uh, for long. We have to get back into the fight. And the only other time in David's life where he royally screws up is a season in which he chose to not go to war with his troops. And that's the story of David and Bathsheba, and we'll get to that in a few weeks. Never, ever quit fighting if you can help it. Write that down. That's an important life lesson. Okay, well interesting story. I think it's pivotal. And I would say this, if you're in a cave currently, decide who you are. Because I think that's what David did. It's when you have nothing, when things have fallen apart, 
on you. That's really when you get to decide who you are and what you're about. And, uh, and I think that's the process that David was going through. If, you're decide, if you decide that you're gods, shrug it off and see if you can find some way to worship him, even in the midst of your misery. You might need to worship with creativity, um, as, as he did. Maybe you're not a gifted musician or a poet, but you'll think of something. Um, worship with creativity as if he loves you still, even though you're isolated, disappointed, and you've screwed up. Worship him as if he's about to unfold the rest of your fruitful life, as if he's the God who fulfills your purpose, as David's psalm said. You could tell what he was thinking about. I'm going to still believe that this can work out somehow. And he celebrated that in worship. Then, uh, if you're smart, you'll listen for the word of the Lord and see what the Lord will do for you. Don't stay holed up for too long. We're not designed to live in strongholds. We're designed to live in the thick of battle. And nothing will keep you sicker than avoiding battle, avoiding the work of the kingdom, avoiding ministry. So make sure that you jump into it as soon as you can. Even our screw-ups should not keep us uh, from ministering the kingdom. So a boiled down question might be, where does your security lie in life? Where is your security going to lie in the future if you're in a cave currently? Are you going to put your security in the way that other people treat you or in the way that the powers that be treat you? See, David didn't have that option because the powers that be hated him and were trying to kill him. So not a, not a good security base. Is your security going to be in your good performance in being able to do the right thing? Well, the problem is that David had fouled up and gotten people killed and got himself imprisoned and had to humiliate himself before crowds. So if his security was in his good performance, then the dude was kind of screwed. Uh, is your security going to be in your reputation? Well... No, the Philistines didn't respect David's reputation as a champion. And, and uh, of course, many Israelites probably suspected that he was a defector and half the country was trying to get him killed. It was hard for him to take shelter in his reputation and his good name. He had sort of lost it. Is your security going to lie in your refuge, in the place where you go to hole up? where nobody can find you and nothing can bother you. Well, the problem is that you can't do any good in places like that. You can't become anyone of value there. And if you spend too much time in your life not doing anything of value, it makes you sick. It makes you very, very sick. And some of you have discovered that. Is your security going to lie in God? Yes, of course, that's the right answer. We all know that's the right answer. Yeah, Uh, but here's what that often means. That often means that when you're stripped of everything in life but God, you'll figure out how to be secure in God. That's just often how life works. And a lot of us need to have that lesson if we're going to become the man or the woman that we are anointed uh, to be. 
and if you get through that experience well, then you live not because things are wonderful or because you feel really good about yourself or because you feel good about how your life is going, uh, but you live by God somehow. Somehow. You're just going to live by God. I'm going to live by God. I'm going to live by God. You know what I'm saying? Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever come out of a cave? Anybody trying to come out of a cave right now? Any God would love a giant killer. Any God would love a giant killer. What kind of God would love a screw-up and an outcast? Well, if you've learned the answer to that, well, then you're well on your way, I think. Let's pray. Surely, Lord, many of us have screwed it up. We've missed our opportunity. Uh, we've done something um, dishonorable and humiliating. Okay. Do you have a call in our lives or not? Go ahead and ask God. See what he says. I just feel like, you know, in a, in a brotherly way, I, I just want to speak a blessing over, over you guys. Uh, because I know for a fact that many of you have come through the cave, you know, have come through those low experiences or are coming out of them now. And you've done it uh, worshipfully and openly and, and, uh, and bravely. And uh, just to say it, that sort of thing honors the Lord um, as much as anything else in life. And I just want to affirm you in that, in Jesus' name. I mean, that's the, that's, the, that's the turning point of David's story, in my opinion, and it's, it might well be the highlight of yours. Well done. Well done. Uh, for those of you who are in the cave and you're like, yeah, this place sucks. Why don't you stand up right now and I'll just pray for you especially. I don't know why you're holed up there. Maybe you feel like you have no choice. Uh, maybe you're just so ashamed of yourself you can't go out in public, so to speak. Maybe you got in so deep you just can't remember how to get out. I just bless you, brothers and sisters, with light at the end of the tunnel, for the Lord knows the plans he has for you, plans to prosper and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. He will come to you when you turn to him with your whole heart. 
for it is written. I bless you as worshipers. I bless you as declarers of the truth and as obedient, obedient sons, daughters, soldiers in the community of God. Uh, Get on with it. Get back in the fray in Jesus' name.